evening. Some years ago, I was at Stanford, and a student asked me a question no one had asked me before. If you could be a member of any generation except the one you were born in, which would you choose? Usually when you're asked questions, you think, what's behind the question? I had absolutely no idea in this case. I grew up in China. All sorts of fancy answers went through my mind in a flash. Chinese dynasties, the Greeks and Roman great periods, which I love, the 18th century England, William Wilberforce and Pitt, and of course your own founding generations, extraordinary. But what actually came to me is I'd like to be a member of your generation. Because all of you 35 or under, you're described as the crunch generation. In the sense that in the global era, many of the challenges of our world are converging to create a crunch of problems which will need to be answered in your adulthood. Answer them well, and humanity has calm sailing ahead. Answer them badly or don't answer them at all because of drift and neglect, and humankind will be in trouble. The crunch generation. You can think of various of the obvious problems that we're all facing today. The gravest crisis in the American Republic since the Civil War. The decline of the West, for better or worse what I call this constellation of global problems, the faltering search for a new world order, and, of course, the various unprecedented challenges that go into the future, many of which are discussed or even flow from the Bay Area and Silicon Valley in particular, like singularity, transhumanism, and so on. An extraordinary range of questions that all need to be answered. But we who are followers of Jesus have to admit that we've got a crisis of our own. We can see the church exploding around much of the world, but not doing anywhere very well in the advanced modern world of the Western world. And the crucial challenge in America is that whereas the church in Europe is almost in every country a minority, for various historical and cultural reasons. In this country, the church is a huge majority of people, and yet culturally, almost completely ineffectual. If you compare us with our Jewish friends, the Jews point out with their own sense of humor that their numbers are less than a statistical error in the Chinese census. And yet you look at the scientists, the Nobel laureates, the way they've created Hollywood and a hundred other things, they punch way above their weight numerically with an incredible impact on the modern world. And here, as I said, we who are followers of Jesus are a huge majority and incredibly ineffectual. What has gone wrong? I want to talk about the challenges to people of faith in the advanced modern world. That's the subject for this evening. Let me put out a number of propositions and then throw it open to you for a time of, of discussion. <clears throat> First, follow the outcome of the major questions in our world that are touching on religion. 
the religious factors often ignored. But as many people point out, some of the greatest questions of our time have an essential religious component. Three above all. First, will Islam modernize peacefully? As we all know well, most Muslims are peaceful. And yet, most of the violence in the world is Muslim. And the challenge for them is very simply, will Islam come to accept freedom of conscience for themselves and for others? Without that, notions like the Sharia and its imposition will always inevitably be enormously dangerous for the world. With freedom of conscience, you have a very different situation. Will Islam modernize peacefully in the end? The second great question, which faith will replace Marxism in China? It's no secret to the Chinese, an open discussion. The party, the Communist Party, is in power. The ideology, communism, is dead. If any of you have been in any of the Chinese discussions, the word vacuum comes up again and again and again. A vacuum ideologically. I've been in the Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and they've had an open discussion, far more open than you have in many of our Western universities. Which faith will replace Marxism? It could be materialism. It could be nationalism. It could be Confucianism. It could be Buddhism. But as they point out quite logically, it could equally be in 20 years' time, the Christian faith will be the majority faith in China, and there could be a Christian future for China. And you can see each of those futures opens up a very different future for China, but also for the world. The third great question touching religion, will the Western world, our part of the world, sever or recover its roots? If you think for a minute, our Western world and its distinctive civilization is partly rooted in the Greeks and the Romans. And you can immediately think of the gifts of the Greeks and the gifts of the Romans. But the decisive faith in the West is biblical. The so-called gifts of the Jewish and Christian faiths to our Western world. And yet, in the last 150 years, you can see a decisive attempt to cut those roots and certainly in our elite circles today, the Western world is a cut-flower civilization. Cut-flowers can look very beautiful in a vase, but of course, they don't last like a perennial in the ground. And our civilization in key areas like the grounding for human dignity, the grounding for freedom, the grounding for equality, many of the things we take as self-evident and very important are actually rooted in the Scriptures and you cannot ground them, say, human dignity in atheism. You cannot ground, say, freedom in atheism. Sam Harris, freedom is an illusion. B.F. Skinner, determinism, and so on and so on. And you can see the question for the West is, will we recover or sever those Jewish and Christian roots which have been profoundly decisive for the West? So hold that in the back of your minds as you go forward 
throughout your lifetimes. Great questions for the whole global world that touch on the elements of faith and religion in the world. Secondly, face up to the grand tasks facing the church in the 21st century of our world. There are three. The first great task we face today is to prepare the global south. As I said earlier, the church is exploding in the global south, sub-Saharan Africa. In October, I was in Uganda, where 85% of the Ugandans identify as Christians. And you can see the growth of the church in sub-Saharan Africa is phenomenal. Where I just happened to be born in north-central China is the epicenter of the fastest growth of the church in 2,000 years. And much of the church is growing incredibly in Asia, but not in the West. Now, the sting in the tail, and we know the story of the Global South. Many of you have been there. Many of you have heard the reports. They are true. They're inspiring. They're encouraging. But there's a sting in the tail. The Global South is largely pre-modern. And what is done in the church in the West is its capitulation to modernity. In other words, their challenge will come. You can see, for instance, in China, Christians in the rural areas have suffered the most brutal, systematic, vicious persecution of any part of the church in 2,000 years with incredible courage, indomitable courage. Then they move to the modern big cities like Shanghai, and it's harder to negotiate big city life than it was even to survive persecution. And there are many falling away and the faith is changing. In other words, as that world modernizes, it came in the Industrial Revolution, say in England, in the 18th century through steam engines and spinning jennies and things like that. And it comes to Africa through villages all having cell phones. But it's modernity. And many parts of the global south, the nose of the camel, as it were, to put it in that Middle Eastern story, the nose of the camel is in the tent. And the challenge is to prepare the global south for what's coming. And we've got enormous resources in the West, but we've also got to approach them with great humility. Don't do what we did. Because you can see the Christian faith through the Reformation was the decisive force creating the modern world. But we have caved into the very world we helped to create, what's called the gravedigger effect. We've, in effect, dug our own graves by caving into the world that we helped to create. And we've got to say with humility, don't do what we did. Modernity is seductive. Modernity is distorting in ways we need to understand if we're to resist them. More of that later. The second great task facing the church in the 21st century is to win back the Western world. Now, the gospel's not doing well in much of the West. But do we join the alarmists and the gloom and doom people? Or those with a false theory that just as the sun goes round the world, so the gospel goes round the world, and Europe's day is over, it's eclipsed, America's day is approaching the end, and now it's Asia's day. What a totally fallacious theory. 
In fact, our Western world is the heir of two earlier missions to the West. The first was the conversion of Rome. Incredible task, if you think of it. A bunch of what the Romans called Galilean provincials replaced the faith of mighty Rome. Three centuries, and Rome fell. But when the Western Empire fell, so also did much of the Western church. Not the Eastern church survived another thousand years in Constantinople, but the Western church. And the Dark Ages were dark. War, plague, violence, tribalism, conflict, you name it. And the second mission to the West is not so well known, the so-called conversion of the barbarian kingdoms. And from the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth centuries, you can see, partly from Rome, but mainly from places like Ireland, the great age of the saints and scholars in Ireland, they fanned out the missionary movement across Europe. And you can follow the trail of Celtic crosses right down through France into Switzerland and down as far as northern Italy. San Gallen, for instance, in Switzerland, he was an Irishman. And you can see the Celtic missionaries, they brought the gospel and the scriptures and literacy and education, and they sowed the seeds for what became Christendom. And now, here we are in the 21st century. We're living in the twilight of that long second mission to the West. But instead of gloom and doom, we need to win our Western world back to our Lord again. Not as a cultural war, not as a political crusade, but winning people to our Lord the way He sent them out on the Great Commission, one by one, community by community, introducing them to the good news of Jesus. We need to set ourselves to put a face away from the gloom and doom, and by God's grace over the next century to win our world back again to our Lord. The third great task is to contribute to the human future. I mentioned some of the unprecedented problems that are coming in the future, many of them led by Silicon Valley, the so-called scientist kings of Silicon Valley, Ray Kurzweil and Singularity and things like this. But as you get into that advanced discussion, clearly most of the faiths in the world have no answers at all. And many people out of fear or apprehension are not even engaging with the grand debates. And we need followers of Jesus by the hundreds in your generation into that world, grappling with it Christianly, wrestling with its meaning, figuring out constructive solutions to what's coming, injecting ethical and human values back when people trust in technology alone, and so on and so on. Contributing to the human future with courage and with deep convictions. So the church faces grand tasks in our time. Let me move on thirdly to some of the major transformations that are behind the world of our discipleship. Some of these are very obvious, some of them are less obvious, but they're shaping the world in which we're living today. Let me start with a less obvious one, but pretty obvious if you think about it. 
In each case, I want to mention the shift that the transformation represents, and then, without describing it in too much depth, go on to talk about its spiritual significance. And of course, each of these has a significance far beyond the spiritual, too. The first great transformation is the shift from what's called pyrotechnology to biotechnology. Pyrotechnology is the engineering of fire. Warmth, light, power. And for more than 10,000 years, the advance of humanity has really been through pyrotechnology, climaxing in many ways in the Industrial Revolution. But in the 1950s, and since then with the rise of biogenetics, we've shifted from the engineering of fire to the engineering of life. You know it well. But the significance is surely that it has refueled the old Babel drive again. Because with biogenetics and the engineering of life, humans can truly play God at a level that's never been possible before. So we think of Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel and people who tried to remove the gap between heaven and earth and build a tower that would really rival the heavens and so on. Very primitive. No stone in that area, glazed bricks, ceramics. But they did it with their ziggurats or down the road with their pyramids. But now with biogenetic engineering, we can make that look like a child's game. And we need to monitor the idolatrous attempts that you see at the heart of much of that thinking. The second grand transformation you know very well. The shift from the industrial era to the information era, in one word, globalization. Now that's so well known that people dismiss it casually or take it for granted and dismiss it as global only and so on. But actually it's very, very profound. And again, I want to just focus on the significance because globalization, on the one hand, has inflated our human problems to a truly titanic level, and on the other hand, give us such pressure for our daily living that many people opt out of tackling these great problems because they just seem overwhelming. Take, say, sex trafficking. Our family was one of the business groups, the Guinness family, which supported William Wilberforce. And we all know that William Wilberforce is the greatest social reformer in all human history. And supremely among many things he did, the abolition of slavery. And yet, and yet, more slaves today than William Wilberforce abolished slavery. What has happened? Well, globalization represents a global expansion of freedom. But of course, in this case, in a perverse way. A global expansion of freedom, either through technology or through travel. When I was a boy, pornography was generally a matter of dirty old men in seedy old raincoats, back streets of town, miserable looking shops, and so on, and they would slink in and out. Now, though, go online and you men, join your tour to Cambodia if you want girls under 10 to have sex with and so on. 
the global expansion of freedom, the global expansion of travel, or you could have someone sitting five or ten feet from their mother or father into a computer website. Parents can't see what they're into. You can see what's possible today in the rise, say, of pornography, even among pastors in the church today because of that anonymity. But then, of course, globalization represents a global expansion of profit. So the mafia involvement looks like a kid's game compared to the profits today with guns and drugs and, above all, humans. Now, at the same time, of course, globalization, because of its speed and its stuff and its stress in this instant world, is putting incredible pressure on all of us. Life is fired at us point blank. My wife, in the previous election, was having dinner. I was out of town with a friend of ours who was in one of the political campaigns. And between grace and dessert, he got 500 emails. This is before texting. And most of the 500 had to be answered before he put his head on the pillow that night. I don't know how many you get a day, texts, tweets, and so on. You can see how life is fired at us point blank. Take Thomas Jefferson. Something comes from the ambassador in Paris or London. Does he rush an answer? No, no. It takes six weeks to come. It would take six weeks to get back. Why should he hurry? And the whole world was more leisured. <laughs> and you can see today the pressure we're living under and increasingly, you have these titanic problems which we must tackle. And yet, many of us feel besieged in our lives with barely enough time to think, let alone do the things that we need to do for our families and other things. The third challenge is one that's of particular significance for Americans. The shift from what's called a singular modernity to multiple modernities. If you look at the modern world, 500 years or so, you can trace it from the Portuguese navigators, the Spanish Empire, down through the French, the Dutch, the British, and of course, in the last century, the American century. But if you trace it, you see that one great power after another arose to be the leading dog in modernity. And only had to look over its shoulders to see who are the potential rivals were. Not today. In the global era, it said, we're in the world of multiple modernities. In other words, different ways of being modern, of understanding the modern world, of adapting to the modern world. So you've got an American modernity. You've got a European modernity. You've got an Asian modernity. Within Asia, Korean, Japanese, Chinese, Singaporean, and so on. All sorts of different ways. Now, that means simply humility. The old idea that globalization equals westernization equals Americanization equals Coca-Colonization, gone. And you can see in many of the world's discussion today that America is simply irrelevant, made all the more so by the weakness of some recent administrations, but that's not the point. Globalization just raises the challenge of multiple modernities and those of us in the West have to come to the rest of the world with a humility, both about what we can share 
and about our weaknesses historically and so on with humility, because we are only one way of being modern among many ways of being modern. And these things are the backdrop for our discipleship. Now, let me go on fourthly to the heart of the debate. Why is the Christian church so weak in the West, even where it's numerically strong as it is in this country? The major answer is that the Christian church in America is more shaped by modernity than it's aware of, often more shaped by modernity than it is by the gospel. Now, let me be clear. Thinking Christians, and obviously that includes all of you who want to come to something like this tonight, many wouldn't. Thinking Christians in America are very aware of hostile alternative ideas. You take a notion like relativism, or secularism, or postmodernism, or whatever, each of those ending in ISM. They are a set of ideas. You can persuade some of them out of them in an hour or five minutes, and if they once believed that, they can be persuaded out. They no longer believe that. But that isn't the main challenge of modernity. It's nothing to do with ideas at all. Modernity ends I-T-Y, not I-S-M. What's the difference? Modernity is the whole kit and caboodle, the whole constellation, not just of ideas, but of everything that makes our modern world, including cell phones, television, cars, satellites, bureaucracy, cities, you name it. Everything to do with our advanced modern world. And as it's put very simply, modernity, not ideas, notice, not modernism. Let me tell you an illustration how people often get this wrong. I was speaking some years ago at the second Lausanne Congress, and I was asked to address the topic mission, and modernity, given 17 minutes. <laughs> I did my best. The topic had never been raised in those circles before, and I went out afterwards, and in the foyer, I met an American missionary lady who came up to me, and she said, I didn't hear everything you said, and I didn't understand everything I did hear, but why on earth did they ask a man to speak on maternity? <laughs> <laughs> well... No wonder she didn't understand. Anyway, we all understand maternity, everything to do with motherhood. And modernity is simply everything to do with our modern world. But the key thing is much more than ideas. So we've got to be aware of the way modernity is shaping us unawares. So to resist it, you have to recognize it. Now, the trouble is, 50 years ago, I've been following Jesus for 50 years, when I first became a Christian, what was worldliness, the world, to most Christians? It was little no-nos. Don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke. And people got thoroughly fed up. And then came the 1960s, and they threw out those little no-nos. They were trivial. And so there was no concept of the world. But actually, modernity, in its fullness, is the most powerful, pressurizing, pervasive example of the world that there has ever been. And many Christians had thrown out the category, and so they didn't recognize it and didn't resist it. Now, what do I mean, though, that modernity has done this damage? 
And I would say that modernity has done more damage to the church than all the persecutors in history put together. You could argue that. I hope you will. You can debate it. More damage to the church than all the persecutors in history put together. All right, let me give you some examples. But let me make clear, I don't mean, and you probably came across this at university, I don't mean that under modernity religion disappears. No. That fallacy is what's called the secularization theory. You may have come across it in college. Put very simply, it's the idea the world gets more modern, the world gets less religious, so we get really modern and religion disappears. Nonsense. It held sway for 200 years. But actually, it was factually wrong, and it was biased. There were secularist assumptions smuggled into the beginning. And it collapsed in the 1960s and 70s, above all, through the Iranian Revolution. And as many people realized, the world is as furiously religious as ever. And all that's happened in the last 10 years, we don't need reminding of that. I don't mean the secularization theory. Religion's not going to disappear. You could argue that anthropologically, let alone theologically. But what has changed? Well, let me give you three examples and see if you see some of these pressures everywhere. I don't mean they're inevitable. I don't mean they're universal. And if you recognize them, you can resist them. But if you don't, you may be shaped by them unawares. The first is modernity tends, and let me underscore the word tends as a trend. It's not inevitable. Modernity tends to shift us from authority to preference. As followers of Jesus, we are under authority. Jews and Christians are people who know authority. When God speaks, we listen, we obey. Jesus is Lord. And He is not only Lord, He has put the stamp of His authority on His Word. And He Himself was subject to the authority of Scripture. And there's no getting around that for followers of Jesus. We are under authority. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? Jesus said, but don't do the things I say. Or as John Armand said, if Jesus Christ is not Lord of all, He is not Lord at all. We are under authority. Karl Barth called that, the great Swiss theologian, called that the binding address of truth. You believe this, you behave that way. There's a link between belief and behavior. But in the modern world, it's dissolved. What you believe and how you behave, gone in two different directions. Now, what's done it? Let me take just one factor, consumerism. I'm not attacking consumerism. But at the heart of consumerism is choice and change. And it touches not only things like cereals, you go into a supermarket and you've got a hundred choices, it touches relationships, and it touches faiths. 
And so you can see the rise of what's called cafeteria theology, cafeteria faith. You go into a cafeteria or go down a salad bar, and you, know, you don't like radishes, all right, take carrots. You don't like kale, all right, take romaine, take whatever you like, a bit of this, a bit of that. And as one man said to me, everyone puts a good dollop of love on their plate, but hell, he went on, hell no. <laughs> in other words, in the modern world, consumerism means you pick and choose. It's all a matter of your preference, your whim of the moment. That's all it is. But then people do the same with faith. Parts of the Scriptures they don't like. All right, just ignore those. And, well, Paul was a little limited there by the first century in the Old Testament, of course. You know, and so many Christians have done what Thomas Jefferson did. He took scissors to the gospel, cut out all the supernatural. And you can see that many Christians today, they don't take their scissors, not as thoughtful as that, but pick and choose the way they do in a supermarket or a shopping mall. It's all a matter of preference. It's all pick and choose. And the net effect is authority is gone. And you can see the tragedy of churches that abandon authority, the authority of our Lord, the authority of Scripture, and eventually they will have nothing. And in their faithfulness, as Søren Kierkegaard says, they become kissing Judases, people who betray Jesus with an interpretation. We don't like this. We don't like that. Ah, that I'm not comfortable with that interpretation. Sorry, Pastor Dave. That Oh, too tough for me, and so on. No, no. We are people under authority, and yet our modern world tends to shift us from authority to preference. Well, take a second one, quite different. The modern world tends to shift us from an integration of faith to a fragmented faith. Integration to fragmentation. Now, if you think for a minute, the Jewish and Christian and Muslim faiths have one thing in common. They all require integration. If you're a New Age believer, you don't have to integrate your understanding of crystals or a little meditation with your work? Not at all. But Jews are called to integrate their faith under the Torah. Muslims, under the Quran or the Sharia. And for us, of course, under the Lordship of Jesus. Our faith requires integration. There's not an inch of any part of life, as Abraham Kuyper said, over which Jesus Christ the Lord does not say, mine, for those who are his followers. So your work for any of the high-tech companies or restaurant or law or teaching or medicine or whatever you're doing throughout the week, every part of that is to be integrated. Now, what does militate against that? Well, the technical term here is what's called differentiation. It's a fancy word for the way the modern world has thrown up all sorts of different spheres of life, which all have their own worlds and their own ways of doing things, so you, you tend to live a little differently in all of them. Many, many years ago, my wife and I were in Los Angeles, and I was asked to give an adult education course there in, in the church that President Reagan went to. And I'd made them do a study of their own lifestyles in L.A. Many of them in this church drove 75 miles to church. Another 125 to work the next day. Who knows how many to the beach or to a ball game or to the cinema or whatever. 
You all know well, L.A., this vast, sprawling metropolis held together loosely by cars and freeways. <laughs> but it was in L.A. where the comment was made in the 60s that the Christian faith was, quote, privately engaging, publicly irrelevant. In other words, it flourished in the home. You hope it flourished in the church. But when someone went to Hollywood or Northrop Grumman or wherever they went, they lived a different way in a different world. It was fragmented. I lived a few brief years of my life in a Swiss village with only 200 people. A rumor could go around in 20 minutes. <laughs> it was very easy to live an integrated life in that small world. San Francisco is relatively small compared with L.A., compared with Tokyo or Mexico City or Manila or any of these big cities. But you can see in London, in many of the big cities, the challenge is to live an integrated life. So you're the same person with the same faith everywhere. Of course, some areas require a far greater challenge to think through what it means, say in a law office or wherever you're working in the financial industry or whatever. But you can see the challenge of our modern world throwing up all these different spheres is to keep together an integrated life. Otherwise, we love Sunday morning, but it has next to nothing to say what we're doing on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and so on. The shift from integration to fragmentation. One other trend. The modern world represents a shift from the supernatural to the secular. If you go back to the pre-modern world, the unseen was not unreal. You didn't have to be a Christian if you were an animist and believed in the spirit of the waterfall or whatever. The unseen world was actually more real than the seen world. And if you go back to the traditional world, people understood things as basic as business or farming or sex in the light of the unseen world. But a feature of the modern world is that the unseen world is unreal. When you talk about the real world, what do you mean? The world of business, science, politics, technology, economics. You certainly don't mean anything to do with the unreal world. And yet, biblically speaking, the unreal is, sorry, the unseen is more important than the seen. Take Elisha and his servant. The servant panicking as he saw the enemy troops. And Elisha prays, Lord, open his eyes. And he sees the horses and chariots of fire all around him. Or you think of Daniel. God's man in two of the greatest empires of those early worlds. And there he was, incredibly aware, not just of the opposition of Persia and so on, but of the angel princes that was the power behind Persia, the unseen, incredibly unreal. Now, in this case, we have to be clear, modernity hasn't done it alone. It's happened over many centuries. If you look at it very, very quickly, and this is far too fast, you can see that our Lord comes in and He preaches in the power of the Spirit. He heals in the power of the Spirit. He delivers in the power of the Spirit. He discerns in the power of the Spirit. And He gives that gift to the Twelve to the 70, and on the day of Pentecost to the whole of the church. And you can see right down from the early church to the 5th century, the incredible power, supernaturally, 
of those who are followers of Jesus. They talk in Alexandria and in Cairo of Christians who had, quote, more fun, that word is almost the word used in Greek, more fun seeing healings out in the public square than they had going to the big sports games and the gladiatorial games. The power of the Spirit was incredibly powerful. St. Augustine's a kind of hinge. Comes to Christ out of a pagan background, and at first he's a little skeptical. Well, these things maybe have happened way back then, but surely not today. And his fellow bishops show him they were still happening. And Augustine records 70 expressly supernatural miracles in Hippo, his hometown, alone. But then the problems start. First, it began to be specialized. Only certain people and only certain places. Only the saints with a capital S, which is why you have to have miracles attached to sainthood today. But when you limit it to certain people and certain places, what happens? Superstition, corruption, money-making, all sorts of stuff surrounds it, and it becomes the world for hucksters. Then you had the Reformation, draining the swamp. But they threw out the baby, the bathwater, and all, not just the corruptions of the medieval world, but often the very notion of the supernatural. And you have the irony. John Calvin is the theologian of the Holy Spirit. Many of his followers are the frozen chosen. <laughs> and then you had the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment didn't believe in any of those things. And now we have modernity, where the real world is the seen world and what we can do, rational calculation, etc., etc. So for modern people, the unseen is unreal. And the simple fact is that many American Christians are atheists operationally. Atheists unawares, functional atheists. And that power of the Spirit you see in Africa or China or the early church or in our Lord supremely, it's not there. Max Weber calls that people who are tone deaf. They don't pick up the music of the spheres by which people who understand the supernatural orchestrate their lives. Peter Berger says many modern Christians live in, quote, a world without windows. It's all this side of the ceiling. That's us. And I would include myself. If I hadn't come to Christ, I would have made a very natural atheist. My wife, who did come out of an atheist background, has an incredible supernatural sensitivity and the ability to pray for five or six hours with real prevailing prayer, which I've never been able to. But you can see how many of us are shaped by modernity more than by the Scriptures and by our Lord, and we've shifted from authority to preference, from integration to fragmented lives, and from a living supernatural world to a basically secular world. One last point, and then over to you. Make sure you have the tools you need for grappling with our modern world. Our challenge is, can we live a faith with such integrity that it can prevail over the teeth of all the problems and challenges we have today? Now, we believe that Jesus is the answer, which means, of course, we should be able to do that. Now, to do that, we need to grapple with our modern world. And let me just mention three things which we all need to grapple the world I've sort of described. The first is 
supernatural warfare. Any of you read Immanuel Kant, the great Enlightenment philosopher? His last essay is called Perpetual Peace, a very, very famous essay. He predicts that the reason will rise and triumph, conflict and war and religion and superstition will fade away. We will be able to achieve perpetual peace. Incredible essay that launched the peace studies movement, gave rise to the League of Nations, all sorts of very, very influential. A hundred years later, another great German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, gave a completely different picture. Any of you have ever read his last work, which is called Eki Homo, which he wrote just before he lost his mind? He says, and he almost quotes our Lord. He called himself, of course, the Antichrist. He says, we're about to be in a world with a war of spirits, some translators say spiritual warfare, we're about to be in a world of a war of spirits, the like of which the world has never seen. Now, who's closer to our 21st century world? Kant, perpetual peace, or Nietzsche, a war of spirits? And if ever we needed to understand spiritual warfare and engage spiritual warfare, you look at things like, say, failed states, the cataclysm in Syria or Libya or whatever, we're seeing a malevolence and a malignancy of evil. You can't just explain economically and politically and socially. And we need both to interpret it as well as engage it with a full understanding of the dimensions of principalities and powers. Spiritual warfare. The second tool we all need is the capacity to persuade. In the Eisenhower era, the great era of, say, Billy Graham, almost every Christian, uh, sorry, every American understood Christian, even if they weren't Christians. They could understand it. It was the lingua franca, the common language of, of America. And you can see it was the great age of all the recipe formula. One, two, three, four, this. One, two, three, four, that. And you trot it out and you won people to Christ. Jesus never spoke to two people the same way. But that Christian consensus has collapsed. And we've got a thousand and one philosophies and answers and ways of life around us today. And certainly you have. Here in San Francisco, I just take the Uber drivers I've had in the time I've been here, you know, <laughs> thinking of all their philosophies of life just in a few, a few days. If ever we needed to know how to translate the gospel into all the ways and languages of people around us and then persuade them, and that, of course, is apologetics. Now, of course, apologetics today has become corrupted into being eggheads, your little group in the church who are the intellectuals and they love apologetics and they can give you a thousand and one reasons why Jesus rose from the dead and answer all the objections, one, you know, one to a thousand. That's not apologetics in the Scripture. 1 Peter 3, Peter's talking to ordinary Christians. Be ready to give a reason for the hope that's within you. That word reason in Greek is apologia, an apologetic, a, a, a defense a persuasive defense of the faith. And if ever we needed to recover every follower of Jesus, knowing what they believe, but knowing how to defend and persuade others of the good news of the gospel, 
it's today. I'm sure that uh, reality has a high place for that. I haven't a clue. The third thing we need, and this is the one that's the least understood, is what I'm just going to call cultural analysis. How do we discern the spirit of the times? How do we make sense of the world in which we're living? Now, apologetics deals with ideas. But as I said earlier, many of our main challenges don't come from ideas. They come from that seductive, distorting, shaping power of the modern world. How do you analyze that? Well, you do it through cultural analysis. Now, notice the difference between what's called the history of ideas. Don't want to get too technical here. But the history of ideas, very important discipline, that shows how ideas flow from a thinker to his thoughts or her thoughts in a book or whatever, down to the impact on the streets. Francis Schaeffer used to say, how ideas wash down in the rain. So, you have a lot of people today, you, you, you may read, say, The Economist has made the notion post-truth world. Very popular. It's all, almost every newspaper, you know, since The Economist used that term. But that actually just comes from Nietzsche. If God is dead, truth is dead. And since the 1880s, postmodernism's argued everywhere. There's no such thing as truth. And now you can see The Economist and many others commenting in the recent elections, of course, truth isn't dead, and you notice when they say post-truth, you have to have even more fact-checkers than before, because you can't get away without truth, because normal human life depends on trust, and you need truth in relationships, in journalism, in science. We actually can't get away from it at all, but they call it post-truth. But you can see, you can analyze that with ideas, from Nietzsche, how his ideas have washed down in the rain, and now many people literally quoting Nietzsche They've never heard of him. That's the history of ideas. You answer that through apologetics. But here's this tougher point. There are lots of areas where people's thinking doesn't come from any ideas at all. You say, what on earth am I talking about? <laughs> Let me give an example. A feature of our modern world is fast life. 24-7 pressure, turbo capitalism, business at the speed of light, the instant world, removing the gap between here and there, now and then, between one thing and the next thing. So life is fired, as I said earlier, point blank at us. This is fast life. Where on earth did it come from? You start to think which philosopher, which psychologist, which social scientist behind it, you'd be stuck because there isn't one. Where did it come from? Clocks and watches. Now, the clock was invented in 1300 in Europe. Historians say it's the most powerful invention that Europe's ever put in the map. Didn't make all that much impact in 1300. Not really till the 19th century and the Industrial Revolution. Now you began to have coordination. Little steam engines puffing their way across continents big fat railway timetables, they were all coordinated. The French Minister of Education in the 19th century was very proud of being able to say, 11 o'clock, calculus. Every French student at that hour was studying the same thing. You began to have a coordinated world, but of course that's primitive. 
We're now in the world of atomic time and digital time. Now, if you read Lewis and Clark, your great American explorers, they discuss they want to meet at a certain place, I can't remember where it is, somewhere out in the West, on a certain date. And they were, quote, nine days apart. And they write it in their journals, we were relatively punctual. <laughs> Could you dock a space station nine days apart? <laughs> That's not our world. It's come from clocks and atomic digital time and we're all running crazily. And the Africans are saying, all Westerners have watches, except they don't today, they have cell phones. All Westerners have watches, Africans have time. Well, there's a saying in the Philippines, Westerners are people with a god on their wrist. Oh, got to go. Instant obedience when you see the time. And you can see, so how does your cell phone affect you? Cell phones touch presence. And we've all seen cartoons or photographs of six teenagers around a table, none of them looking to each other or talking to each other, texting each other. It touches presence, being with someone, the incarnation. And you can see everything has its effect. Television compared with radio. Radio is word-based, television image-based. The rise of celebrities. People are just well-known for being well-known, and there's no, no character or substance there at all. <laughs> partly funny, but partly very damaging. Your American Republic, for instance, depends on character and leadership. How do you have character today? And so on and so on. These things are very profound. But you need to be discerning, not just of ideas, but of the world. Because it's all around you, and it's shaping you, and if you don't start to recognize it, you can't resist it. Anyway, enough from me. Let me draw it to a conclusion and throw it open to you for our time of discussion. If you follow what I'm trying to argue, our challenge in the West is to so follow Jesus with integrity and faithfulness that we have lives that can prevail over these challenges of modernity. Can we do it? Now, we all believe the gospel. We've got to say yes. But are we doing it? At the moment, not very well. I'll finish with just three quick stories. I was home this summer, uh, and at one of our churches in Oxford, a Nigerian brother who'd been in Oxford for a year was just sharing and being interviewed in his last time in the church, and they said at the end of the interview, would you like to share anything with the congregation? And very quietly he said, we in Nigeria are dying for the faith. Please, you brothers and sisters in the West, don't compromise. The second, is, some of you may know the name John Stott, great hero of the faith, died a couple of years ago. He was a great friend as well as a mentor. And I had the privilege of being with him just a couple of weeks before he died. And I spent about an hour and a half, he was lying horizontal in his bed in his 90s. And at the end of it, I prayed for him and I asked him how he would like my wife and I to pray for him in what remained of his life. And with a, a very hoarse whisper, barely able to lift his head above the pillow, John Stott said, pray that I will be faithful to my last breath. 
The other story is a time after World War II when there was a huge discussion of Christian intellectuals in Europe. This is post-war Europe. T.S. Eliot, Jacques Maritain, many great thinkers, and they looked at the appalling challenges of the European church at the time, many of which are now true of the American church, sadly. And in the course of this discussion, one of them, Christopher Dawson, a great Catholic historian, he raised the question, can the church be warmed again a third time? Can it be revived, renewed, restored in the heart of our crazy modern world? One of them, one of the most eminent theologians, Emil Brunner, he said, I'm not sure. He was so aware of the challenges of the modern world, he was not sure the church could really be restored under these crazy conditions. Eventually, Christopher Dawson answered his own question. And he said, can the church be warmed again a third time? He said, every true Christian should answer in the affirmative, yes. But, he said, we must not answer too quickly and too lightly because on the outcome of that question probably depends the future of humanity. Do you hear what I'm arguing? Remember the crunch generation? Your generation challenging, picking up the challenges in your lifetime of these gigantic theoretical and practical questions facing humanity. Are there answers in our Lord and in the good news of the gospel? We would say yes. But we've got to show it by first living out our own lives in ways that prevail over modernity. The greatest challenge probably the church has ever faced. Over to you for our discussion. Dave. Uh, let me. Here. Thank you so much. Uh, I can't wait to listen to that like a hundred more times online. <laughs> that was it. That bad? <laughs> no, is that is that good? It was that dense, that um, challenging, inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, we have um, anyone want to ask the first question to kick us off? Um, raise your hand. Oh, right here. So you, you said a lot of the, the same things in Subversion of Christianity, uh, not Subversion, The Grave Digger File uh, in 1983. You and it sounds like you said a lot of these things in your Grave Digger File in 1983. And it, it sounds like people haven't been listening all too well or there are a bunch of things that they haven't gotten yet. And, and I'm wondering why, why not? Because in easy times, People don't think that deeply. Now, as the times of maximum temptation are times of power and prosperity. And in the 80s, we were still in that time. And now, for almost anyone except someone who's pretty well brain dead, you can see our world is facing incredible challenges, and we better start taking them really seriously. Hmm. I think that's the main reason. You can see, for, I, I, we moved here, my wife and I, and CJ is here tonight, we moved here in 1984 to live in Washington, and that was Reagan's second election, and the slogan was, Morning in America. 
I wrote a book back then saying it was actually late afternoon or early <laughs> evening in America. <laughs> it was not morning, although it was a good campaign slogan and certainly fitted Reagan's sunny, sunny temperament. But we're light years from those Reagan eras, that sanguine, sunny optimism the president brought. Now you look at the crisis. I mean, uh, some of the articles, they're getting deeper and deeper. I read an article yesterday from The Guardian discussing where we are, but going way down below the divisions and the inequities and the forgotten and the unprotected protected people, going down to what's the flaw in human nature? Hmm. They're saying, should we go back to Freud's understanding of instinct? Should we go back to Nietzsche's understanding of resentments? Of course, they never went back to a biblical understanding of sin. <laughs> <laughs> but you can see the diagnosis was getting deeper and deeper and the hmm. flaws were getting more and more realistic. That's the time we're living in now. So it's a time not to be alarmed or fearful, mm. but to move out. Uh, and I don't think people are ready to listen to stuff like that then. Mm. That's good. Anyone up there? Right here? Oh, sorry. Yeah, go. we'll go there first, and then we'll go back here. Um, thank you, Oz, very much for the, for the lecture tonight. Um, as far as... Christianity and the church um, and its rise here in the West. Um, can you give some examples of what it would look like to you um, if there was a change or a shift happening? And what, what would that look like in your eyes? Well, I often say many of the generalizations are a little pessimistic and discouraging. But it's the exceptions which are wonderful and thank God for them. And probably, I mean, I haven't been here long enough, you could say, you know, out of our church, for instance, in Northern Virginia came the International Justice Mission mm. with a great Wilberforce-like passion to fight mm. sex trafficking and deliver slaves and so on. And probably, you know, if I were in Washington, I could say, you know, there's a, you may have heard there's a church in San Francisco right in the heart of things where they have incredible worship on Sunday and the power and the sense of the Holy Spirit moving and so on. Now, I haven't been here long enough, but I got a glimpse of it on Sunday. In other words, thank God for all the exceptions and let's, by God's grace, each of us try to be exceptions hmm. and live out the fullness of the gospel. Hmm. But there are glorious exceptions. Hmm. Here. And then we'll go here and then down, down over here. Uh, thank you for your talk, Mr. Guinness. Um, so I just wanted to express, I guess, um, I don't know, like a struggle that I feel in that with the pressures of moderner, mo, uh, modernity, if um, like the fast life that comes at me, um, it's to give that up or to fight against it has a really high cost. And as an example, it's like, let's say part of fast life is I have to put many hours at work, for instance, mm -hmm. just to stay competitive. And so if I am going to back away from the idolatry of the clock and the idolatry of productivity and all, like a lot of aspects of modernity, um, I feel like it's then I'm going to fall behind. And how, how do we deal with that? Mm. That's my That's question. question. Yeah. Great question. 
I am not in favor of backing away and disengaging. You have talked today of the so-called Benedict option, mm -hmm. you know, and people who want to re-monk the church and go out into the countryside and have consistent Christian communities. I, personally, I'm not in favor of that. We're called to be salt and light. Mm. Engagement is an essential for discipleship. But let me answer you like this. Look at the life of our Lord. Jesus had no cell phones next to no technology. He is busier than any of us. I mean, the context of the feeding of the 5,000, he was so busy that day, that 10 o'clock, whatever it was that night, they hadn't eaten. Or take, say, the man let down through the hole in the roof. Jesus was a rock star. Those people who brought their friend to be healed couldn't get to him. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people around you, Dave, but Jesus was so <laughs> much a rock star that they couldn't possibly get to him, so they had to make a hole in the roof. Now, you can see our Lord is under incredible daily pressure without any technology. And what does he do, though? Here's the point. He withdraws periodically, not totally. His life is a rhythm of engagement, withdrawal, across the lake, up a mountainside to pray, when he's doing important things like choosing the twelve or whatever. But most of the time he's engaged thoroughly, teaching the crowds, healing the crowds, etc., all day, and then periodic times. So, the practice of the spiritual disciplines. I would suggest you read, say, Dallas Willard's great book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, mm -hmm. including that notion of solitude. Now, as we build those disciplines into the craziness of life, to save us, and there are all sorts of things too, like, uh, for example, in the global world, you know René Dubois' famous maxim you see in the back of bumper stickers, think globally, act locally. What's the biblical equivalent? Well, we can think and pray globally, but if you just do that, you'll be overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. We have to act locally. In, in the Scriptures, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We only have 24 hours. When I'm on a really intense trip, I don't want to hear about Friday if it's Monday or even Wednesday if it's Monday. Monday's problems. And you only live one day at a time. Give us today our daily bread. So we need to remember, we're little people, little power packs that only live three score years and ten, give or take a few. And we live each day at a time with a dailiness as well as the disciplines of solitude and so on. So look into the scriptures and see how they did those things. Um, our Lord is even more pressured than we are without technology. That's great. Gosh. Wait, what did we say next? I forgot. Oh, over here. Hi, Oz. Thanks for coming to speak to us. Um, I was a little depressed in the beginning of your talk, but I was more inspired <laughs> toward the end because I, I sort of... Depressed at the beginning, <laughs> but oh. inspired at the end. <laughs> Sorry so, about that. <laughs> but no, no, I think at the end, I, I felt more inspired than, uh, because I think I sort of understand a bit more about the problem. I think every generation, we're always fighting for something. Like in the 40s, we, we fought the axis of evil. In the 70s, we fought against communism. And now we're fighting global uh, climate change. We're fighting in, uh, incoming inequality. Do you think after 100 years of fighting these sort of problems, we forgot that the biggest problem that we should fight for is salvation and redemption because I, I don't see those vocabulary being thrown around in our in our current culture mm. and do you think 
fight, I, I don't want to discount these big problems, but don't you think these are kind of distraction, like climate change, income inequality, are these more distraction to sort of the core of the problem, which is salvation that we should all fight for? Um, where you started, I think it, we're called as Christians to look reality in the white of the eye, so we have to be as realistic as anyone there is on earth. But at the same time, we respond with faith and hope. So our realism never leads to pessimism or to cynicism or alarmism, no. We're absolutely realistic, cold-eyed, looking at reality, and yet with hope from the gospel. Now, remember that biblically, salvation is not just personal. You know, the other talk I was going to give thinking of this evening was the way the Jewish notion of covenant contributed to the Reformation is behind the American notion of constitution and constitutional freedom. But you wonder why, if you understand that whole history, Catholics missed it, got to say. I'm not attacking Catholicism, but you can see how from the fourth century to the Reformation, the Catholic Church was not covenantal in its structures, it was hierarchical. And when the hierarchical structures built on power were corrupted, they became highly oppressive. Mm -hmm. Now, most of us are evangelicals or come out of a broadly Protestant background. Protestants used to take covenant and exodus very, very seriously. But evangelicals, over time, they personalized it and spiritualized it. So the covenant and the exodus and the liberation from Egypt was a wonderful precedent which prefigures my salvation. No, that's not how the Reformation took it. It was a social and political way of God's putting people together that had incredible significance. So salvation was personal, yes, but it was covenantal and covered a whole people. And we've got to recover that wholeness. This isn't liberal theology, but nor is it a pietism that's individual in, in, in an extreme way. So salvation take seriously God's creation. We as humans are responsible for God's creation. And we've got to take back much of the environmental movement from the tree huggers and others. We have allies sometimes. But we have a far deeper rationale for doing things like that. Now, the challenge is today, these things are overwhelming because we've got, you could put 30 major problems. And so it's a question of which of us is praying about this, which of us is tackling that. None of us can do them all. But we do need, by God's grace, a holistic, fully biblical understanding of salvation, shalom, of something which is profoundly personal and individual. Thank God it includes me, but it spreads out from there to include justice in societies and relationships and so on. Mm -hmm. Put it this way, a thought for you. Americans go crazy about democracy. George Bush say, freedom and democracy Democracy says nothing at all about society. Nothing. Republicanism and covenantalism do. Covenantalism is based on a reciprocal responsibility of everyone for everyone. It's in the covenant, love your neighbor as yourself. And that whole notion of reciprocal responsibility, you treat the stranger differently because you were strangers in Egypt, etc., and Republican covenantalism is all about society, not about the state. 
It's about relationships, not about regimes. And yet Americans have abandoned covenantalism and constitutionalism and gone wild on rather empty notions like democracy. And actually, democracy is pretty threadbare today. That's another story. <laughs> uh, let's go over here, down here. Uh, yeah, right there. Toby, you choose. Just. Hello, thank you, Mr. Guinness. Um, my question for you is, earlier you mentioned that if you can pick a generation or a time to live in, you would pick... Sorry, louder. Oh, if you can pick a generation to live in, you would pick now, the crunch generation. And I wanted to ask, how would you... If, if you could, how would you live and what would you set out to do? What would your maybe day-to-day -day look like? Huh. That's a good question. Everybody get your phone out or how you take notes. No, no. At the end of the day, well, there was a really mistaken approach about 25 years ago. People started to talk about strategic callings. In other words, they said, there are areas of life, the media. Well, we didn't have enough Christians, so we should all think of going there. That was totally mistaken. The Lord is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of the armies. He deploys His people through calling. And each of us has different gifts, different callings, and different spheres. But in those spheres, we all have families, neighbors, colleagues at work, callings. Some are lawyers, some are financial investors, some are high school teachers, some of you are computer scientists, some of you whatever, some of you are pastors. <laughs> we all do our utmost for His highest in our calling, and thank the Lord that everyone else is doing the same thing too, or should be. But we can think globally, and we can pray globally, but if you see your life, think of a target, the bullseye, concentric circles. We all live somewhere and work somewhere. That, I'm here tonight, this is not my bullseye. I live in Washington. Most of my life is there, although my friends are inviting me to do a little more here. But this, to me, is one of the circles that starts to widen. You can vote, you can email, you can give money, you can phone, you can travel. And our little circles of influence spread pretty wide, if you think of it. And now we can pray for what's happening in China or whatever, even if can't visit it. But at the end of the day, your circle's limited. Thank God. Otherwise, you couldn't sleep tonight. So we do all we can in those circles of influence with the core being where we live and work, and then we live the rest to the Lord. But the question is, are we doing our utmost for His highest within those circles that are the sphere of our calling? And that's what Dave and the other pastors are training you and equipping you and encouraging you to do. And so Sunday morning into worship, the rest of the week, fanning out through the Bay Area, mm. living out your callings in every area, wherever the Lord takes you. Mm. But content to be small. Mm. Content to be small. Someone get a tattoo of that. <laughs> I'll buy it <laughs> for you. Um, is there anyone up there? Because we have a few down here. Okay. Let's go, let's go right, right there. Oh, you already chose one. We're going there. We're, go we're going to go there next. Hi. Uh, you spoke about the importance of being under authority. 
And I want, I want to know, um, how can you tell whether a church is under authority or not? Say that again. That's a good question. How can you tell that a church is under authority or not? Well, uh, currently, uh, with evangelical churches, it's the question of do they pick and choose when it comes to Scripture? I've read the Scriptures for 50 years now, and I was introduced to what was then called the Mario McChain method, and he told you how to read the whole Bible through once a year, the New Testament twice. And so I find even after 50 years, the parts of the Scriptures I've never really understood or never seen, and suddenly they come alive. But you can see today many people just picking and choosing. They don't like what Paul says here, or they don't like what Leviticus teaches there, and so they just ax it. Now, we can't pick and choose. If Jesus is our Lord, and He puts His stamp of authority on His Word, and His Word will not pass away, heaven and earth will pass away, but His Word won't, we better listen to it, obey it, and follow it. There'll be reasons, even when sometimes we don't fully understand them. And yet you can see the pick-and-choose mentality. If it's inconvenient or it's unfashionable or it's against a particular philosophy, let me be blunt. Um, take the sexual revolution. There are many people who use that but never really understand the sexual revolution. So our challenge as followers of Jesus is to follow what Jesus and the Scriptures teach us to do. And I try and look at that. But then I also try and look at the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is not like a Marxist revolution. There are parallels. It has different prophets. It's not Hegel, Marx, and Rousseau, and people like that. It is the Marquis de Sade, André Breton, and above all, Wilhelm Reich, who coined the term sexual revolution. But if you read that stuff, it is so antithetical to everything deeply biblical the utopianism of the view of human nature. Humans are basically good, just repress sexually, remove sexual repression, they'll be free and happy and peaceful. It is utopian nonsense. And you go from there and examine each step of what they're doing, and any Christian who's looked at it in depth, you go, oh, my word, I've got to look at that very carefully. In other words, it's not just that certain ideas are flowing around the culture, or that we've, you know, a bit of waywardness since the so-called three Ps in the 60s, the pill, permissiveness, and playboy. No, something far more profound is at stake. You've got a revolution in germ, which is every bit as antithetical to the gospel as Marxism. Mm. And yet Christians often don't look at it, and so when it's inconvenient, pitch the Bible out in terms of whatever's convenient. Mm. So it's that pick-and-choose attitude to following the Scripture, which is deadly. Hmm. Wow. Hey, we promised over here, so we are doing it. So we have two right here. That had, yeah, right, yes, and then right here. Next. Um, you talked about spiritual Wait, sorry, warfare. Where are you? The light. Right, right there. How do you tap into God's peace and joy that surpasses all understanding while going through spiritual warfare? But it is our Lord's promise. And even the truths of Scripture, for example, the sovereignty of God. So, one of the biggest forces in our world today is globalization. It's almost bigger than any other force today, even, say, war. 
war gets globalized in a way. Globalization is titanic to understand, let alone to resist. But God is bigger than globalization. So the sheer truth of the sovereignty of God, we can rest in those truths. You'll never meet a problem which is too big for God. Now that's just the matter of resting in the truths. And then the supernatural reality, the Lord can give you peace in the midst of the most awful challenges. But don't ever try and go alone. You need brothers and sisters around you. And there are times when our little ships look as if they're going to capsize, whether it's the personal tragedy or scandals or whatever, or the public ones threaten to overwhelm us. And people get fearful, and as the disciples did. And we need other brothers and sisters to come around us with warm hugs and assurance and encouragement mm. and stand with us when sometimes we haven't the strength to stand ourselves. So there's a threefold part, the truths of Scripture, which we know are true once we accept Jesus, the genuine supernatural reality through the Holy Spirit of peace, and then the encouragement of brothers and sisters when we get, and we all do at times, beaten down. Uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on modernity and some of the challenges we're facing facing in this world. Um, one thing that comes to mind to me when I think of modernity that may not have as negative of a connotation and actually celebrated and very respected is diversity. So then how do we stay pers persuasive, as you said, in this world of modernity that celebrates diversity when we are so centered around the faith that Jesus is the only way and the only truth. Say it again. Mm. So the question was, if, we, if our culture celebrates diversity, um, how does a church embody a single way? Jesus is the only way. How do we both respect um, diversity? And a di probably, I would imagine a diversity of opinion and thoughts, right? How does that, how's a, how do you have a very um, a no. singular faith in a pluralistic world. We should never be afraid of diversity. Creation alone is magnificently rich in diversity. We should glory in diversity. Diversity goes wrong, and the twist, of course, is sin. And that means diversity is magnificent, but diversity is also somewhat fallen. Now, in today's world, where everyone is now everywhere, and you've got people all around us, travel, migration, the media, scholarship. We are aware as never before of diversity. So the only real parallel to where we are today is the Roman Empire, which is incredibly diverse religiously. We're much more because it's now global rather than just the Mediterranean basin. But if you go back to the first century, the early church didn't compromise an inch. Incredibly diverse world, but they would rather die than, say, burn incense to the Caesar as Lord rather than Jesus as Lord. And they would rather die than compromise with all the Gnostic religions and the pagan religions and so on. In other words, in that incredibly diverse world, in terms of faithfulness, they were committed to our Lord because they believed it was true. In other words, today you need, on the one hand, to look at the diversity it cannot all be right. They are very, very different, and the differences make a difference, not only to individuals, but to whole cultures. 
So there's a challenge to looking, on the one hand, why do we believe the Christian faith is true? And you need to know why you're convinced that's so. So I believe it's true. I remember someone came to us at Labrie when I was working there, and she said, I always knew the Christian faith was true, but I never realized how true it was. Now, in the one way, that's stupid. If it's true, it's true, it's true, it's true. But you can see today when people say, well, it's true because it works for you. It's true for you because of your background. No, the Christian faith isn't true because it works or because we feel it or whatever. It is true. So you've got to know that. But it's also helpful to look at the alternatives because there's a little principle in apologetics. Contrast is the mother of clarity. A lot of ideas are very appealing, or they look incredibly challenging, but really have the courage to look into them, if those are the ones challenging or appealing to you. And the deeper you'll go, you'll see that the differences from the gospel are so decisive, thank God for the truth of the gospel. Mm. And you end the, I remember when I was in my 20s, I studied under a guru. And he was a philosopher guru in Rishikesh, and I was warned that it could be incredibly complex and very, very subtle and very challenging, and it was. But the day that I started to see the profundity of the difference between the biblical worldview and the Hindu worldview, I was overwhelmed with gratitude and wonder. If you read George Whitfield, the uh, evangelist who's behind the American Awakening, he has a wonderful little maxim. He says, I'm never better than when I'm on the full stretch for God. Hmm. It's often when you take things complacently. You're not stretched. You, you wonder if this is really true. Couldn't something else be a little more appealing? But when you really go out on the line, put your shirt down, your life down, you realize the differences of the gospel to the alternatives are so profound. When, when I was at Oxford, the area, my doctorate was a very complicated area, sociology of knowledge, if any of you know that area. It was mind-spinning, supposed to be the most relativizing philosophy ever. And for a while, I was sort of dizzy with all the craziness of it. But when again, it, I, I began to think through and saw the differences between the gospel and this, again, I came back as from the ashram, just overwhelmed with gratitude for the wonder of the truth of the gospel. So always remember those two things. Explore the conviction of truth and then have the courage to really explore the differences. Mm. Don't just say there are a lot of differences. How can this be true? Many of them are crazy or they're inadequate or they're appealing for the first five minutes, but the deeper you go, they don't have answers. I mean, this is not quite what you're asking, but let me say today, we are the great champions, maybe the last champions, of human dignity, of freedom, of equality. Lots of things which we think are basic, certainly to a liberal society, certainly to America, you can't ground them in atheism. Sam Harris, freedom is what? An illusion. You cannot prove freedom through science alone. Best will in the world, you can't. Naturalistic science can't find freedom. Where does it come from? The Bible. We are the last champions of these things, but we need to do the exploration, come out with the confidence, the gratitude, the, the, the worship, and then go out into culture and defend these things which are disappearing. Mm. 
incredible moment for the gospel. Wow. We have time for one more. Uh, we should be fair to the balcony, so let's go there. Uh, right behind you, Beth. Your lights are so powerful, I can't see the faces up there. Yeah, they're pretty powerful. Don't look directly at the light. Yeah. Thank you for your time. Um, I was wondering how you would go about communicating the reality of the autonomy that we have to face these great challenges of our modern age to the many people my age that I have met that don't believe themselves to have any real ability to affect the change. Hmm. Now, you're right. Many modern people are overwhelmed with their powerlessness. And, of course, we've seen a lot of that in in recent events across the world, in the Philippines, the Middle East, in Italy most recently, or you could some say in our own election, and across the world there's a longing for a strong man to speak for people who have no voice, who have no power, and it's an extremely dangerous moment, and we need good leadership rather than just strong leadership. But go back to our biblical understanding. One person with God is a majority. Every single human being is, has a precious, inalienable dignity. Where did that come from? The Scriptures. So you are made in the image of God. You are free. You are responsible. You are significant. Your prayers could change the world. Your action, who knows what it can do. Now put a whole number of us together. It isn't mass movements. Populism is a, an illusion. But you can see with people who move out with a great sense of faith and significance under the Lord can really make a difference. You take someone like William Wilberforce. Um, he had 25 out of, say, five or 600 in Parliament. But they lived with such integrity. They couldn't bri be bribed. They didn't vote with their party. They voted principle. They always turned down jobs when they were seduced. No, so they had absolute integrity, but that small group became the conscience of England. It can be done. Mm -hmm. That's a critical minority mm. and becomes a critical mass in society. Mm. So we've got to recover a biblical view of the significance of each human being, precious, inalienable, free, responsible, significant. That's you. Hmm. Go out and live that way. That's a great way to end. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.